Okay, so with that, let's turn to Proverbs. <clears throat> Proverbs, we're going to begin a study. We finished last week our study of the 1689 Confession of Faith. And now we're going to begin a study of the book of Proverbs in the afternoon. And also, uh, because of today, we do have to be out by 3 o'clock because there's another event. So uh, we're going to do verses 1 to 7, Braden. Uh, I, I told you 19 last night, but I, I didn't have all the information. See, I didn't have all the information. So we're going to look at verses 1 to 7, kind of an introduction to the book of Proverbs today. And then we'll just begin going through it uh, uh, week by week. So let's pray, and then we'll read our passage and begin our study. Father, we thank you for our time to meet together today. And Lord, we do thank you for salvation, Lord, that you give. Lord, it belongs to you. It comes from you. Lord, you are the one who will bring it about. Lord, we thank you that, Lord, you have the power to do what you want to accomplish. To, to accomplish. Lord, whatever you want to do, you have the power to fulfill it. Lord, we know that you desire and you want to give full and final salvation, Lord, to your children, and that there is no one that can thwart you or keep you from doing these things. So, Lord, we ask that we would have confidence in these things, Lord, that we would have faith and true belief in this, and that, Lord, you who have begun a good work in us, we pray that you would bring it to completion on the day of Christ. Lord, we know that you have begun this work even now. Lord, you will perfect that work on the day of Christ. In that now, in this present life, Lord, you are perfecting it. Lord, you are sanctifying us, Lord, day by day. And Lord, you have not left us without your wisdom and your counsel, Lord, to guide us into the proper path. So Lord, we are grateful that you've given to us, Lord, this book of Proverbs, Lord, which is, Lord, a containment of your wisdom, Lord, a deposit of the wisdom and the knowledge, Lord, that we need to live a godly life before you, Lord, that we have many examples of what it means to fear you and to keep your commandments so that we are without excuse. Lord, everything we need for life and godliness is graciously given to us by you and your word. Lord, all that we are lacking is in faith and diligence. And so we pray, Lord, that you would build our faith and that you would make us diligent, Lord, to uh, walk in your ways. So, Lord, be with us today and help us as we study, Lord, throughout this book of Proverbs. Lord, may it be a blessing to us and we pray that you use it to sanctify us, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, well, as I mentioned, we are going to do a study of the book of Proverbs, and the book of Proverbs is a uh, necessary book for us, right? Everything in the Bible is given to us. Every word of God is true. Uh, every word of God is needful and necessary so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So there's not one single word in the Bible that is not necessary for our salvation and for our sanctification. And we know that when God delivered his word to us, he, he did not give it to us so he could hear himself speak. He didn't give it to us uh, because he's bored in heaven and he wanted to say some things. And so he likes to hear himself talk and he's just pontificating about this and that, but it has no bearing or usefulness to us in our daily lives. This is certainly not the case with any other Bible and especially the book of Proverbs. 
Right? God has spoken His Word for us. It is for our sake that God has given to us His Word. And every word of God is needful and necessary for life and godliness. And the book of Proverbs is especially useful to us because in the book of Proverbs, we have what it means to fear God, what it means to live in the fear of the Lord, or practical godliness displayed for us in many different ways and in many different situations, right? We realize that we are called to walk in newness of life, that God has uh, redeemed us, right? He has sanctified us. He has called us in Christ Jesus, and that we are called to live a life of godliness, right? We are to walk in newness of life, that he who began the good work will bring it to completion, that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are to manifest our salvation in our day-to-day living, in all of the various situations that we face, the circumstances that we face throughout each and every day. From the way that we handle our money, the way that we raise our children, the way that we interact with our wife, the way that we deal with conflict, right? There's many different ways, many different things that come upon us every day. And in each situation, it is our obligation, our duty, and it should be our desire to want to please God in everything that we do. So we need to know, okay, God, then what does it look like, right? How do I please you in the raising of my children, How do I please you in the way that I work? How do I please you in the way that I accumulate and spend wealth? How do I please you when I'm dealing with a contentious person at work? How do I please you uh, when I'm pursuing a wife, right? What do I need to do in these situations? And God does not leave us without wisdom. He doesn't leave us in the dark and say, okay, you need to live a godly life, and it's up to you to figure it out on your own. Good luck, and I hope it all goes well. Right? If that was the case, we would be hopelessly lost. Right? We would have no guidance, nothing that we need, and we would be wandering about here and there like a man groping in the darkness. But this is not the case at all. God has given us his word. The word is near you. It is in your mouth, and it is in your heart, the very word of faith that we proclaim. The word of God is given to us to give light to us, to show us the way, to show us how to live a life pleasing to God. Everything that we need to that we need to know about God in terms of theology, in terms of our beliefs about who God is, about who man is, about sin, about judgment, about salvation, the person, the work of Christ, and everything we need in terms of our doctrine and theology is found in the Word of God. And then everything that we need in terms of our practice, in terms of godliness and holy living, how to live a life pleasing to God, it's also found in the Word of God. And this is why the book of Proverbs is so useful. It shows us how to live a godly life. What does that look like, practically speaking, day to day in various circumstances and in various situations, right? And it's written from the perspective of a believer, right? The book of Proverbs is written from the perspective of a believer and what a believer will desire, right? Externally, in terms of his obedience to God, what does it look like in these various situations? Now, it's important to note that there are some things in the book of Proverbs, some things externally that even an unbeliever might do, right? An unbeliever might see that it's good to not be a sluggard, 
and it's good for me to not sleep until noon every day and to get up early in the morning and to be a hard worker. And if I'm a hard worker, I'm going to advance at work. I'm going to do well, earn the favor of my bosses, and I'm going to make more money. And that's going to be good for me and for my family. And an unbeliever might say, you know, I need to be a hard worker. And they might pursue those types of things, right? Or an unbeliever might say, you know, I don't want to squander my money. I don't want to spend it on riotous living and this and that. But if I'm frugal and if I don't spend it on useless things and I save my money, then I'm going to accumulate more wealth. I have more money to invest and I'll be able to have a better life. All right. So there are some aspects of the book of Proverbs that even an unbeliever might be able to apply externally. But here in the book of Proverbs, we have to understand that whatever it's teaching us by way of externals, is proceeding from the fear of the Lord, right? From the fear of the Lord and from faith that resides in the heart. So for the Christian, right, he wants to work hard, not merely so that he can get ahead in this life, not merely so that he can win the favor of his bosses, so that he can move up in the company, so that he can make more money. Yes, those things may be legitimate if they're rightly understood, But ultimately, what drives the believer in wanting to work hard is what? To please God. I want to do the will of God. I want to please God in everything I do. So the principle within his heart that is guiding and driving him in everything that he does is the fear of the Lord and this desire to be pleasing to God. So that's what's on his mind. I want to please God. Therefore, I need to be a hard worker. I want to please God. Therefore, I need to raise my children in the fear of the Lord. I want to please God. Therefore, I need to find a godly wife, not a contentious wife. I want to please God. Therefore, I want to stay far away from the adulterous woman, and I want to live a life of purity, right? I want to please God. Therefore, I'm not going to be wasteful with my money. I'm not going to spend it on these useless, frivolous things, and I'm going to be a good steward of it. I'm going to save it. I'm going to uh, uh, do the things that I need to do in terms of my giving and my obligations, but I'm also going to be frugal. I'm going to save. I'm going to invest. I'm going to do those things because I want to please God. Right, what is driving him the motivation for doing these things outwardly in the world is this inward attitude of desiring the will of God, wanting to please God in everything that he does. We could say that Psalm 119 shows us the heart of the matter, and the book of Proverbs shows us the feet, the heart and the feet, or the internal and the external. Psalm 119 gives us the attitude of the believer, and then the book of Proverbs shows us in many practical ways what the believer's life will look like day in and day out. So the reason the book is given of Proverbs is to show us how to live a godly life, and it does so in many practical ways, many situations that we are going to face, and it gives us much help for this so that we know how to do the will of God. Now, I say this because I have heard of pastors before, one pastor in particular, who said that the book of Proverbs is not to be practiced. The book of Proverbs is not to be applied. Yes, many people have puzzled looks on their faces. This is what I had as well when I heard this. But that the book of Proverbs is not to be practiced and it's not to be obeyed because we're under the law of Christ. And it's all about grace and love, and it's not about a list of do's and don'ts. And the book of Proverbs is a list of what? Do's and don'ts all over the place. Actually, I heard someone say one time, of me, your own pastor. 
He said, I hear a lot of do this and don't do that. Well, the book of Proverbs has a lot of do this and don't do that. Isn't that the Christian life? You need to do this, love God with all of your heart, soul, might, and strength, and you need to not love money more than God. Do this and don't do that. You need to live a life of purity, and you need to forsake immorality or or impurity. You need to do this, and you need to not do these things. And the book of Proverbs gives us many such examples. But it's not giving these things so that we can earn our salvation by our good works. Of course not, right? Of course Solomon and the other writers does not believe these things, right? The, the proper sequence is regeneration, which produces faith and repentance, and then produces holy living. Regeneration brings about faith and repentance, and it brings about holy living. But how do we live a holy life? We need to know how. There has to be specificity to it. The Ten Commandments provide specificity for what it means to live a holy life, And then the book of Proverbs gives us many examples, many situations for how the Ten Commandments is to be applied in our day-to-day life, right? In all of these uh, Proverbs, all of the sayings that are given can fit in one way or another into either loving God or loving our neighbor or into one of the Ten Commandments. And it teaches us how to live a godly life in that way. So let's begin. We'll read verses 1 through 7 today, and then we'll make some comments here and there. Proverbs chapter 1 says, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion, A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Here at the beginning it says, these are the proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Here at the beginning, it is ascribing the book to Solomon, or much of the book to Solomon, though there are other Proverbs in here by other wise men, yet the primary writer is Solomon. This would be the same as the Psalms. Many of the Psalms, if we say who wrote the book of Psalms, typically we'll say, well, the prophet David did. And certainly he wrote many of the Psalms, though not all of them, yet the Psalms are ascribed to him. In the same way, the book of Proverbs is ascribed to Solomon, though there are others who wrote some of the Proverbs, but the majority of them were written by Solomon. And who is this Solomon? He is the son of David, the king of Israel. We understand that Solomon was the third king of Israel, right? Saul, then David, then Solomon after him. And he was the son of David, and he was the king of Israel. And if we go to 1 Kings chapter 4, it tells us that Solomon's wisdom exceeded that of any other man. First Kings chapter 4, Verses 29 through 34. It says, Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. 
Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, uh, Haman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom." So here, Solomon had great wisdom. And who was the source of his wisdom? Where did it come from? It came from God. Yes, it came from God because when he was made king, he gave to Solomon a request. Ask of me whatever you will. And God said, I would give it to him. And what did Solomon ask for? He asked for wisdom. Give me wisdom. Give me discernment so that I can lead your people, right? So that I can rule over them with wisdom and discernment. And so God bestowed this upon Solomon. And his wisdom was renowned throughout all of the world, right? His wisdom on these various topics. Now, this wisdom of Solomon has to primarily do with spiritual things. It has to primarily do with salvation, right? Just as it says, of Timothy, that Timothy was acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Right? The wisdom of the Bible is primarily dealing with spiritual realities, right? salvation. Right? Not that it doesn't have any bearing on this present life. Of course it has a bearing on this present life, but not apart from the spiritual. Primarily it is spiritual, and then as it is spiritual, it relates to the things that are happening in this present world. So the wisdom of Solomon is not merely how to conduct foreign affairs, right? How to rule over your subjects, right? How to uh, grow a fine orchard, right? Or to how to have a good garden, right? Though there is a proper place to understand those types of things, but even an unbeliever can know how to grow a garden. Even an unbeliever can know how to d uh, conduct diplomacy and how to relate to foreign nations. That's not the wisdom that we're dealing with in the book of Proverbs. This is the wisdom of God, and it has to do with salvation, and it has to do with righteous living. How are we to conduct ourselves in the fear of God? How are we to live our lives before the presence of God in a way that is pleasing to God? That is the wisdom Solomon possessed, and this is the wisdom that he taught to others as well. And from 1 Kings, we see that his wisdom was very great, right? So if we want to be wise, don't we need to be with wise men? Don't we need to read those who have wisdom and understanding, right? If someone wants to become proficient as a mechanic, doesn't he need to study and listen and be around someone who knows what they're talking about? who knows and understands the way the engine works and who can explain it and who can teach him and pass that information and knowledge on to him. Well, the same is true with spiritual things. If we want to be wise spiritually, then we need to be around wise men, those men who are spiritual. Well, who is wiser than Solomon? Where did his wisdom come from? It came from God. So we would be wise to listen to him, to listen to him and to heed his words and not to be suspicious of him, but rather to listen to the wise sayings of Solomon. Because ultimately, these sayings did not originate with Solomon. 
but they originated with our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He is the one who inspired him through his spirit to write the things that he wrote because this is sacred scripture. And all scripture does not come about by the prophet's own interpretation, but they are carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is given to us then as a twofold uh, commendation of the book of Proverbs. First, we should listen because it comes from God. And secondly, we should listen because it comes from Solomon, right? And in both ways, we would be wise to listen to these words, right? These are not opinions. These are not suggestions. These are not take it or leave it. This is the word of God, and we have to receive it in that way. It's a matter of life and death. It's truth and error. We have to obey and do every word of God. Now, I'll say that because as we go along, there are points where people are so bold as to say, oh, I would never do that. I would never do that. Right? I would never spank my children. But what does the book of Proverbs say? You spare the rod, you spoil the child. So if a person says, I wouldn't do that, they're saying that they have more wisdom in disciplining their children than who? Than God. That they are wiser than God. And we can't say that we're wiser than God. We have to listen to God and do what he says. Verse 2 says, To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. Here, the purpose of the writing, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding. The purpose of the book is so that we would know wisdom, so that we would have instruction, so that we would have discernment in the sayings of understanding, so that we might know the mind of God, the will of God, the very wisdom of God, which is able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We need God's wisdom so that we are not fools. Otherwise, we'll be stupid. We are stupid in our natural state. We are darkened in our understanding. We have no knowledge of God. We have no knowledge of right and wrong, of righteousness and wickedness. Right? We may have a little bit from nature, but we don't have sufficient knowledge of any of those things. So if we are going to come to the right understanding of truth and error, of righteousness and wickedness, of good and evil, then God has to teach us. We have to come to the Bible, open the Bible, read the Bible, and pray for God to open our eyes so that we can understand these things that have been given to us by God. And the purpose of this is so that we would have wisdom. Right? Is wisdom good or bad? Right? Isn't it good to have wisdom? Isn't it good to have instruction, to have knowledge? Right? These are not evil things. Though today, many times in the churches, people will demean knowledge uh, study, uh, they, they look at the, as if those things are bad to have, right? As if someone who's pursuing knowledge, who wants to understand the Bible, oh, well, you, you just have a, a dead, dry uh, spiritual life, right? It needs to be uh, filled with emotionalism and fervor. That's the kind of, of Christian life that we want, one that is absent from the Bible. They don't want the Bible but instead, they want to listen to Hillsong and Bethel and these kind of cheesy songs that get their emotions all drummed up, and then they think they've had a spiritual experience. But that's not the spiritual experience that we need. We don't need a uh, tepid uh, uh, spiritual experience that is vacuous and void of truth and knowledge. 
We need one that is based upon wisdom, knowledge, truth, instruction, discernment. These are the things that we need for the Christian life. He says in verse 3, to receive instruction in wise behavior. Now again, I remind you, earlier I said there was a pastor who said that it's not to be applied. But he tells us right here at the beginning, the purpose is for what? Wise behavior. It has to do with our behavior, the way that we live, the way that we conduct ourselves. And we need to conduct ourselves not as fools, but as wise men, as those who have wisdom, so that in our behavior, in our daily life, the way that we live, the way that we talk, right, the things that we do, our values, that these things are conforming to the word of God and to the wisdom of God. And he's going to tell us, this is how you need to live. This is the behavior that you as a Christian, as a child of God, this is the behavior that you must have. We need instruction in wise behavior. He says righteousness, justice, and equity. Righteousness, justice, equity, right? What is right, right? What is just? And what is equitable, right? Or that which is fair and right, what needs to be done in the proper situation. If we go over to Genesis 18, Genesis 18, right, this means that we need to understand good and evil and to understand what needs to happen because of good and evil. Genesis 18, verse 16. Genesis 18, 16 says, this is when uh, the Lord and the two angels visited Abraham, right? Visited Abraham. It says, then the men rose up from there. And it says men, it means the angels who they supposed were men, but they were really angels in the appearance of men. The men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring about upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to this outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know it. There, the Lord, when he's saying, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? He's announcing that he's going to reveal to Abraham what he is about to do. But he's saying it in this way, so that he can give the reason why it's necessary for Abraham to know this. Abraham needs to know what God is going to do because God is going to make Abraham into a great and a mighty nation. And Abraham is going to need to understand righteousness and justice so that he can teach his children and command them in the way of God. And here, righteousness and justice... How is the righteousness of God taught to Abraham? How is the justice of God taught to Abraham? Well, it's in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Their sin brought forward, and then God's judgment upon their sin 
teaches Abraham that God is a righteous God and that God is a just God for the purpose that Abraham can now teach his children, namely Isaac, that God is a righteous God and that God is a just God. And if you behave like these men, then God will do to you the same thing that he did to them. So you have to repent of sin, you have to reject sin, and you can't live the way the Sodomites lived. You have to live a different way. You have to live a pure life, a holy life, a righteous life, and you have to do the will of God. And not only do you need to do that, but you need to practice this in the world in whatever way that you can. In however way that you can promote righteousness, justice, equity, then you need to promote it in the world, in your family, in the church, in society. Wherever we can, wherever we can gain influence, we should promote righteousness, justice, and equity according to the word of God, not according to the word of man. That's what he's teaching, Abraham. And this is what Solomon is saying here in Proverbs chapter 1. This book will give to us righteousness, justice, equity. Right? It will give to us wise behavior. It will give to us wisdom, instruction, and discernment. These are all great virtues for us to possess. These are things that should, whenever we see that, we say, oh, look at this. Look at the, the great gifts. Look at the riches that are found in this book. It ought to spur us on to say, I should read this diligently. I should read it over and over and over again because these are the things that I need in order to live a life pleasing to God. He's putting it before us here. He's wetting our appetite with the good things that are in the book so that we would say, oh, I shouldn't neglect this. I should get up and read this, right? I should be very zealous and diligent for the truths that are found here in this book because look at how beneficial it's going to be. It's going to be a benefit for me. It's going to benefit my family. It's going to benefit my church. It's going to benefit society. It's going to be beneficial and helpful for everyone if I take these things seriously and I practice them in my own life and teach others to do as well. Verse 4, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge and discretion. Here, the wisdom of God gives prudence to the naive. The naive. This is us in our natural state. This is us apart from the grace of God. We are naive, simple people who are easily duped. We're like a youth, right? He's using youth here, right? Both in terms of youths need to be taught wisdom because they don't know how to conduct themselves in the world, right? They're easily duped. They don't have wisdom that comes with experience and with age. But also in terms of what we are now in this present life, we're all like youths. Even the most senior or aged of us is still like a child in terms of what we will be in the life to come. So we are in constant need of instruction, of teaching. Just like you constantly have to instruct your children, you have to tell them in all of these situations what it is that they need to do. And you have to be very clear to them, explain it to them. Usually 20 times over and over again, you have to tell them this is what you need to do, right? So that they get the point. Well, that's what the book of Proverbs is doing. This is what the whole Bible is doing from cover to cover, explaining the same truths over and over and over and over again in many different ways, a thousand different ways, because we are naive and we are like youths. We need knowledge, we need discretion, we need prudence. And we need to go to the word of God. And this is what will make us wise. And so that we quit being like children 
who are tossed to and fro by various winds of doctrine, and we grow up to maturity in our salvation so that we will possess discernment and we will not be easily susceptible to the lies of the devil. Right? The simple, the naive, they're the ones who get duped by the devil. We don't want to be duped. Right? We don't want to fall to his traps. We don't want to be like Eve, who was deceived by the serpent's cunning. Well, how are we going to overcome the lies of the devil? How are we going to extinguish his flaming darts? Through our faith. Faith in what? Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. It's going to be the word of God that will give us the wisdom, the discernment, the prudence that we need so that we cease to be naive and we become mature in our faith, and then we're not going to be as susceptible to the lies of the devil. Romans 16. Romans chapter 16. Verse 17. Romans 16, verse 17 says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not to our Lord Christ, but of their own appetite. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. There, these false teachers, these false brothers that are in the church are not slaves of Christ, but are slaves of their own appetite, their own fleshly, worldly desires. And they use smooth, flattering speech to deceive who? The simple, the naive. Here he calls them the unsuspecting. They are easy prey for these people because they cannot see past the smooth talk and flattery And they're not able to discern between truth and error, between good and evil. Well, we don't want to fall in with these kinds of people. Because they don't serve our Lord Jesus Christ. They serve their own appetites. And those who serve their appetites are going to be destroyed by their appetites. Right? They're like a pig being fattened for the slaughter. And they're going to be slaughtered on the day of judgment. We don't want to be slaughtered with them. So we need discernment so that we will not be deceived by these people, by false teachers. And that's what the book is giving us. It's giving us these things so that we will grow up into our salvation, right? So that we will be discerning and wise in the will of God. Verse 5, a wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. Right? A wise man will hear and increase in learning. Right? A person who is wise will read the wisdom of the book of Proverbs, and what's going to happen to him? He's going to get more wisdom. Right? He's going to grow. He's going to keep acquiring more and more wisdom. A man who has understanding will gain more understanding. He will gain more counsel. And this is why we need to constantly be reading the Bible. Can anyone here say they have perfect wisdom? Can anyone say they have perfect knowledge of everything in the Bible, that they have mastered the Bible from cover to cover and they perfectly understand and know everything in the Bible? No one can say this, right? No one can say it truthfully. Someone might say it 
untruthfully, a liar, but no one truthfully who is sane and in their right mind and looking at reality can say that they have mastered everything in the Bible. Have we mastered some things? Yes, there are some things that we know that we have wisdom on, that we have understanding on, but can we always grow in that? Yes, we can grow and we can gain more understanding, more clarity, more counsel, so that we're constantly growing in our knowledge of the things of God. We're constantly growing in our wisdom. Well, the one who has wisdom, the wise man, when he reads the Bible, he's going to get more wisdom. right? The man who already has some understanding will read the Bible and he'll get more understanding. He'll gain more wise counsel. But what about an unbeliever? What about a fool? When he reads the Bible, does he gain wisdom? No, he doesn't at all. He doesn't gain it at all. He actually, what he even receives is going to be taken away from him. It's actually going to put him in a worse spot on the day of judgment because now he's going to have more guilt upon him, more condemnation because he didn't listen to the word of God. Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verses 16 to 18. Luke 8, verse 16 says, No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So take care how you listen. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him, right? The purpose of lighting a lamp is to give light to the house, right? You don't light the lamp and cover it so that the light doesn't emanate and spread throughout the house. The reason is to put it so that people can see. In the same way, the reason the word of God is given, the reason the wisdom of God is put forth is so that people might see, so that they might have understanding, that they might grow in these things, and that's why Jesus says, take care how you listen. Whenever you come to the word of God, whether that's your own personal reading, whether that's with a friend and you're talking about the things of God, whether that's at Bible study or when we come to church and we're hearing the word of God taught, or if you're listening to a sermon, or if you're, there's some book that is good and it's teaching about the things of God, you have to take care how you listen. We cannot have this flippant, laissez-faire approach to the Bible and think it doesn't matter, take it or leave it. You know, these are just suggestions and ideas. I like a little bit of this. This is like the Golden Corral Christianity. You know, I like green beans. I do like green beans, but I don't like um, uh, Brussels, Brussels sprouts, okay? So I'll get the green beans and I'll leave the Brussels sprouts off. I like uh, ribs, but I don't want any pot roast. So I'll get some ribs and I'll leave the other there. That's how many people approach the Bible. We'll take a little bit of this, a lot of love and grace, a lot of sugar, but we don't want any judgment, any wrath, any holiness, any righteousness, no repentance. You just pick and choose whatever you like. We can't approach the Bible that way. We have to take all of it, right? All of it is good for us. All of it has been given by God. And we have to take care how we listen. We have to be humble. When we approach the word of God, we have to be ready to obey, ready to repent, right? Trembling before God, right? Take care lest there be in any of you 
an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. We have to be careful how we hear. Well, the one who is careful, who is humble, whatever he has, to him more shall be given. He has the right approach. He has some understanding, right understanding about God and the things of God. He approaches God in the right way. And then whenever he hears the word of God, what's going to be given to him? He's going to get more understanding, more wisdom, more faith, right? More godliness is going to be produced in him. But the one who does not have, who doesn't have true faith and doesn't approach God in the right way, even what he has is going to be taken away from him. Even the word that he hears, it's not going to benefit him because he's not united with faith with those who believe. He doesn't have true faith in what he has, the word of God near him, in his mouth and in his heart, in that it's near to him, he hears it, he's been taught it faithfully, but it doesn't benefit him because he does not believe it. Well, we have to believe the word of God. That's what he's telling us here. If you are a wise man, and what is a wise man other than a believer, other than a Christian, other than a child of God? If you're a wise man, if you're a child of God, you're going to read the words of this book and you're going to gain more wisdom, right? If you are a man of understanding, then you're going to read this and you're going to acquire wise counsel. It's going to be a benefit to you. That's the way that we have to be. We have to approach the word of God, whether Proverbs or any other book, with a humble attitude, fear and trembling before God. This is the one that God will look to. He who is contrite and lowly in spirit and trembles at my word. Trembling at the word of God. Then verse 6. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. Here, the proverb is spoken of as a figure or as a riddle. That these are figures of speech or riddles. Sometimes mysterious, uh, difficult to understand, right? But difficult to understand for whom and difficult to understand in what way, right? That's the key. That's what he's talking about here. Well, if we go to Matthew 13, it tells us who it's going to be difficult to understand for. Matthew 13 Verses 10 uh, through 15. It says, And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them. Actually, we'll stop there. When people usually ask, Why did Jesus speak in parables? And most of the time people will say, Jesus spoke in parables so that people would be able to understand it. Right? So it would be clear and simple and easy to understand. So he used stories and illustrations, and therefore we should use stories and illustrations in this way. But is that why Jesus spoke in parables? Okay, let's see the answer. Okay, verse 11. Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And he who has an abundance... But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, 
Because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them." But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So there, Jesus spoke in parables so that they wouldn't understand, right? Seeing they would not see. Now who won't see? The unbelievers won't see. But the believers do see, right? They see, they understand because they have eyes. So Jesus spoke in this way to conceal it from the unbelievers and he knew that the Holy Spirit would teach it and reveal it to the elect or to the believer. And that's why he spoke in parables or riddles or mysteries in this mysterious way. The unbelievers would hear it and go, this guy, what's he talking about? He's talking about seeds and, and fields and, and throwing it out. We don't know what he's talking about. He, he's insane. Let's, let's go uh, over here and go get some lunch. And then they walk away and they go get lunch. But the believer, the one who wants to understand, he hears it. He may not understand it perfectly at first. He might say, you know, what exactly is he talking about in this? But I want to know more. I want to know more. And I know that he can teach me more. So he's going to go up to him and ask him, Lord, what does this parable mean? Teach me, give me understanding. I want to know what it means, what, it, what, what you're talking about. Explain it to me. And then what will Jesus do? He will give him more understanding, right? More understanding, more teaching. This is the way it is in the Christian life. So these are riddles or proverbs, right? Figures of speech that many unbelievers would read and go, this is nonsense. What is this, what is this even talking about? It doesn't mean anything to them, but not for the believer. The believer sees it, and they want to understand it. And even if there is a level of mystery to it, they're not going to rest until they find it, until they find the answer. They're going to read, they're going to study, they're going to search the Scriptures, they're going to find some counselor, someone who knows the Bible better than them, or, or some book that might be helpful, and they're going to look and read until they get the answer that they are looking for, because they want to know the Word of God. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8 says, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages for our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So there, God's wisdom is called a mystery, a hidden wisdom. Right, But again, hidden from whom? Not hidden from us, not hidden from the believer, but from the unbeliever. They're the ones that can understand it. Or even if they do understand some concepts, it doesn't lead to faith and repentance. It doesn't change their life in any way, shape, or form. But that's not the way that we want to read the Bible. We want to read it so that it re results in faith and it results in godliness. That's the proper way and if we have wisdom and we read it, then we'll get more wisdom, right? If we have understanding, we'll read it and we'll get more understanding. Verse 7. 
This is the key to the whole book right here and to the Bible. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Here, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Meaning, if you do not have the fear of the Lord, you cannot have any knowledge. Any knowledge, true knowledge of spiritual things. You must have the fear of the Lord. And knowledge doesn't mean just mere conceptual knowledge, but it is true knowledge, true knowledge that results in faith and repentance and godly living, right? That's the knowledge that we want, the knowledge that leads to salvation, right? We don't merely want some conceptual knowledge of the things of God. We want it to be in every part of us. We want it in our heart. We want it in our life. We want it in our day-to-day living. And if we are going to have true knowledge of God, it must come through the fear of the Lord. That is the beginning of knowledge. This means that someone is worshiping a false god, they cannot have any true knowledge of God. There is no knowledge, true knowledge, in those false religions. They are dead, they are stupid idols, and the people who worship them become just like them. They are foolish people. And we have to say this to Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, whatever. You are foolish people because you worship a false god. And there's no knowledge that will lead to salvation in your false religion or even in false forms of Christianity. There's no knowledge, there's no true knowledge of God in Roman Catholicism, in cultic versions like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, Arminianism, whatever it is, there's no true knowledge of God there because they don't have the proper fear of the Lord. The fear of the true Lord, not a Lord of our own making, but the Lord found in the Bible. We have to have the fear of the Lord. And what is the fear of the Lord based upon? Right? Why is it that we, would, that we would have the fear of the Lord? It has to be the knowledge of judgment, the day of judgment, the life to come, right? The reality of eternal hell for the wicked and the unbelieving. Without the knowledge and belief in the life to come and in the day of judgment, then there is no fear of the Lord. If all there is is this life, and we live our life and then we die, then what do we have to be afraid of in terms of the life to come? Then eat, drink, be merry, do whatever you want to do, right? What does it matter if you're just going to die? And that's the end of it. But the fear of the Lord comes when we consider that this life is only but a vapor. And there is a life to come. And in the life to come, there is either a heaven or there is a hell. And I better make sure that I don't go to hell and that I do go to heaven and that I will stand before God and I will give an account of what I've done in the body, whether good or evil, to the Lord. There must be this knowledge of the invisible God and the day of judgment in order for us to have the fear of the Lord. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10 Matthew 10, verse 28. Matthew 10, 28 says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but who are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And here, who's he speaking to? He's talking to his disciples. 
right, those who are professing to be children of God, professing to be Christians. And he's telling them, don't fear those who can merely kill the body, right? That would have to do with his present life. But the soul has to do with the life to come. And hell has to do with the life to come, eternal torment, eternal miseries. That's the one that you should fear, the one who can destroy body and soul in hell. So I don't want to do anything in this life that's going to lead me to go to hell in the life to come. That's the fear of the Lord, right? I want to live in a way that's pleasing to God so that when I stand before him on that day, I'm not going to be cast into the lake of fire. So what does the Bible then tell me that I need to do to prepare myself for the day of the Lord? Well, I need to repent of my sins. I need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I need to live a godly life. I need to persevere and endure, right? These are the things that I need to do. These are the things that I need to uh, have in my life so that I am prepared for that day. Now, of course, those things don't originate in us. We're not saying that we need to do those things in terms of our own power or our own free will. Those things have to come to us from God, but God does put them before us as expectations so that we won't be slack, so that we won't be lazy, right? Don't we have a tendency to be lazy, to be sleepy and sluggish and drowsy in our Christian life? And we need to be woken up. We need to be sh shaken up constantly so that we press on and we don't grow lazy, right? Be lazy Christians who sit around and do nothing and think, oh, it's all, it's all going to be all right. We're all going to make it to heaven because God loves everyone, right? We don't want to be like that. We need to be shaken out of our stupor so that we will with diligence run the race that is set before us. Isn't it constantly throughout our Christian life, we grow tired and weary, just like the runner, the one who's running the marathon. There are times when the person wants to give up, or so I suspect, not that I have ever experienced this myself, but I'm sure that there are times when the person wants to give up. It gets hard, it gets difficult, and they say, fully on this. But it's not the one who begins the race who gets the prize. It is the one who finishes the race who gets the prize. And so it is with the Christian life. Many people begin the Christian life, but then one or two months later, or a year or two later, what happens? They walk away. What about Judas Iscariot? He began, but he lasted three years, and then he betrayed Christ. Well, we don't want that to be true of us. We don't want to be the seed that fell on the rocky ground or the seed that fell on the thorny ground. We want to be good seed. And one of the means that God uses to give endurance or perseverance to his children is the fear of the Lord. The knowledge of the day of judgment and the eternal fires of hell. And I don't want that to be true of me, so I'm going to persevere. I don't want to be a superficial false Christian. I don't want to be the Matthew 7 Christian who hears those words, uh, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. We don't want to be presumptuous Christians. So we need the fear of the Lord. We need the fear of the Lord. We need the knowledge of the day of judgment so that we will perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Or what about Philippians chapter 2? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out with fear and trembling. Meaning, manifest your salvation in fear and trembling. Knowing that if I do not manifest salvation, if I say I'm a good tree, but all I produce is bad, rotten fruit, 
then what kind of a tree am I? I'm a bad tree, and I'm going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. So I need the fear of the Lord, the knowledge of these things, so that I will press on, and I won't be slack and grow weary in doing good. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 26 through 31. Hebrews 10, 26. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled under the foot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There, again, he's putting the terror of falling into the hands of God. He's putting that before the people so that they will examine themselves and make sure that they are not superficial Christians. That's the danger, that we would be a superficial pretender, a false convert, a false brother, a so-called brother, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Well, it is the fear of judgment that causes the true believer to persevere. But the false believer, when he hears about judgment, what does he say? Oh, I don't want to hear that. Why are you always speaking about judgment? Why, why don't you speak love to us? Why don't you tell us about the grace of God? Right? They don't want the knowledge of judgment in their mind because it terrifies them because they know that they're sinners. So they don't want to hear about it. The true believer, he wants to hear about the day of judgment. It doesn't bother him at all because he knows how beneficial it is. It's going to be used by God to give him perseverance and endurance, which is going to comfort him. So the day of judgment is not, it brings comfort to the true child of God because it reminds him of the need to endure and then he presses on toward the kingdom of God. It is the false believer who doesn't want to hear about the day of judgment. And if you go into many churches and you preach judgment, people don't like it. They don't like it one bit. They'll, they'll say, well, you know, the Bible also teaches that God is a God of love. Oh, yes, we know that, and we do teach the God of love, but they try to put the God of love and the God of judgment in contradiction. They want to make these, true, these two truths, which are not in contradiction, they want to put them at odds. So that if you preach about the day of judgment one week, then the next 100 weeks you have to preach about the God of love. That's what they want. Actually, they don't ever want you to talk about the day of judgment. But you can preach the love of God a hundred times in a row and no one will ever come up to you and say, well, you also, you have to remember that God's a God of judgment. No one will ever do that. But if you do it the other way, they're quick to remind you of the love of God. Why is that? Because they're unbelievers. They're unconverted. They don't want to hear about the day of judgment because it terrifies them because of their sin. Because of their sin. But the true believer, it doesn't bother him. He wants to hear it. I mean, it, it bothers him, and when he sees this sin, he says, oh, I've got to get rid of this sin. I want to overcome it. I want to repent of it. I want to do the will of God. 
and he loves it. It doesn't dry up his spirit to hear about the day of judgment because he sees how useful it is, how beneficial it is for his Christian life. And consider in the book of Hebrews, where he's giving these images of God as a terrifying, furious fire that's consuming the adversaries. He's talking to Christians who are being persecuted. Who are being per- and we would say, oh, you need to speak soothing, comforting words to them. You need to remind them of the love of God. But what's he reminding them of? The judgment of God. The judgment of God because he knows they need endurance. They need endurance. That The persecution is going to tempt them to turn away and to fall away. And he knows that they need endurance. And that endurance is going to be established through the fear of the Lord. The knowledge of judgment and of the furious fire that will consume the adversaries. Okay, one... Two other passages, 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 1, verse 13. 1 Peter 1, 13 says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were redeemed, that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So there he tells them, you are to live a holy life. Be holy as I am holy. Right? You address as father the one who impartially judges. God is an impartial judge. He is no respecter of men. Well, if you, through your deeds, are proving that you're an unbeliever, then God's going to judge you impartially, right? No matter how many times you've walked an aisle, no matter how many times you've prayed this prayer, no matter how many times you've said that you're a Christian, if you are not a Christian, if you are not a true believer, God will judge you impartially according to your work. So you better make sure then that you are a good tree and that The goodness of the tree is being manifested through the good fruit that comes forth from the tree, not through lies. This is the problem. Everyone says they're a good tree, but there's no evidence for it. Where is the evidence? If it's an apple tree, why is it producing thorns, right? If it is a pecan tree, why is it producing uh, brambles? Why is this happening? You're saying you're a good tree, But why is it that you're producing thorns and thistles? No, you're not a good tree. You're a rotten tree. You're a bad tree, right? But if you are a good tree and there is the good fruit being manifested in you, then this is good. This is what we need. And we need to remember this so that we conduct ourselves in fear during the time of our stay on earth. Fear of God because we know there's a day of judgment and God's going to judge us impartially according to our deeds. And we need to manifest 
that we are true believers. Okay, one last passage, Revelation 15. Revelation 15, verse 3. Revelation 15, verse 3. It says, And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So there, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? And this is the song in heaven, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. So even there, the people in heaven, do they fear God? Do the holy angels fear God? Yes, they do. So even in heaven... After our full and final redemption, when we have no flesh and we have no more sin, we still will fear God, right, in the proper way. And so that's what we need to have today. And this is what the book of Proverbs is commending to us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fool, they despise it. They hate it. They don't care about the life to come. All they care about is living for this present world. And anything that gets in the way of their pleasures, their comforts, whatever they want, their pursuit of money, of leisure, then they don't want anything to do with that. They don't want to think about the life to come. They just want you to say, everything's going to be all right. You're all going to make it to heaven. And then I can go and live my life however I please. But that's a very foolish person that does that. Because no matter what we say we believe, or no matter how much we might try to convince ourselves that there is no day of judgment, or that the day of judgment is going to be graded on a curve, or that we die and then that's the end of us, it doesn't change the reality. It doesn't change the fact that there is a God. He is just. He is righteous. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, and he's given proof of this by raising him from the dead. We all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we will be judged according to our deeds. So we better be ready for that day. We better be prepared. And when is the time to prepare for the day of judgment? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the favorable time. Now is the time. Not then. Right? The day of judgment is not the day to prepare for the day of judgment. Now is the time. Now is the favorable hour. This is the day of salvation for us to prepare ourselves for the day of judgment by repenting of our sins, by trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, and by living a life of godliness. That is the wise man. That's what he pursues. And may this be true of all of us as well. And the book of Proverbs is going to help us immensely in that pursuit. Let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your wisdom. Lord, a wisdom that is foreign to this world. Lord, a wisdom that, Lord, we could never come to the knowledge of, Lord, through our own efforts, Lord, through our own uh, mental capacities, Lord, through any worldly counselor in this present age. Lord, the only way that we can obtain your wisdom is because you are the one who has given it to us. Lord, you have taught us 
Lord, you have given to us your holy word. And in your word is contained all of the wisdom of God, all that we need. Lord, for life and godliness is found in your word. Lord, as well, we need your spirit. Otherwise, even these sayings, Lord, would be riddles to us. Lord, they would be mysteries to us. Lord, we cannot even understand your word, even if we read it, even if we hear it, unless your spirit is our teacher and our guide. Lord, we want your wisdom, and so we ask that you would give it to us in both regards. Lord, that we would have a desire to read and to hear your word, and that, Lord, your spirit would be with us, opening our eyes, Lord, opening our ears so that we might understand the things, Lord, given. Lord, we pray that we would be wise and that we would increase in wisdom. Lord, that we would be men and women of understanding and that we would grow in our understanding all throughout the time of our life. Lord, give to us the fear of the Lord. Lord, may the day of judgment ever be on our mind. Lord, knowing that we will stand before you and give an account and that every deed, Lord, whether secret or hidden, Lord, all of it will be brought forth on the day of judgment. Lord, we cannot hide from you. Lord, we cannot do things in the darkness that you cannot see. Lord, everything is laid bare before you. And so, Father, we pray that we would live, Lord, in this way. Lord, knowing that you see all things and that you will bring all things into judgment. And so we pray that we would fear you and that we would walk in your commandments. Lord, doing those things that are pleasing to you. So, Lord, give us the fear of the Lord, and may we not be as a fool who despises wisdom, who just wants to live for his own worldly pleasures. Lord, may we not be like that, and Lord, we pray that we would pursue you in all things. So, Lord, help us as we go from here today. Lord, help us to live a wise life before you, and Lord, we pray as we study this book of Proverbs that you would give to us more and more wisdom and understanding. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.